You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Welcome everyone, welcome back to Accounted For, happy Wednesday. This podcast is part of OMD Ventures. It's an ecosystem created to be the place where people can be inspired to be unconventional. And if I'm trying to actually get you guys more involved in helping the podcast become better. And to do that, I actually want to start taking questions from you, the audience. And so you can give me your questions by reaching out on the contact page at omdventures.com. I think it's slash contact or you can just go to the website and pick click the tab and there'll be instructions on how you can submit questions and i hope to do like a ama episode when i get enough questions or i don't know i haven't decided yet but that's something definitely in the works so help make it a reality by submitting your questions and i also want to try doing something else that i'm currently experimenting with is having uh, deeper conversations with single listeners and maybe even broadcasting that as a separate episode as well and keeping that as like a part of an anonymous series as well. So there's more instructions on that on the contact page as well. So check it out. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to have more of you uh, get involved with making the podcast a better, better listen for the others as well. And definitely subscribe to be in the loop for the newsletter, the essay, the podcast, everything, as well as a recap of the week. So that's something I exclusively write in the newsletter now. And so definitely subscribe to that at the stakeholders tab and or I think it's the support tab now <laughs> in the website. That's the fun thing about creating your own website and your own platform. You're constantly making a change and grow every day. So if you are a long time listener, you're definitely seeing the website change constantly. And so bear with me on that. All right, so enough about me. Today's guest is Graham Moffat, the Chief Scientist and VP of Regulatory Affairs at Interaxon. Interaxon is a neurotech company based out of Toronto, and they are the creators of the Muse headband, so that's M-U-S-E headband, where it uses technology and neuroscience to help you meditate effectively. And they're one of the world's leading companies that are actually making this happen. So it's actually just a literal headband device that you would put on your head, a wearable. And so Graham earned his PhD, so he's Dr. Moffat, in neuroscience at the Université I Marseille. I hope I said it right. It's a university out in France. And But instead of pursuing the typical academic career for someone who gets a PhD, he had his sight set on joining the private sector, all really formed out in his early years while he was getting his neuroscience education in McMaster. But whilst really having his set sights in the private sector, he was bit by the startup bug whilst building the largest neuroscience publication platform in Switzerland. And that led him to become the chief scientist at Meta, a neurotech company that got acquired by the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, and later to become the first chief scientist at Interaxon. In our chat, we cover Graham's fascinating global journey as a neuroscientist. As you've heard, you know, he's a guy raised in Ontario who goes to get his PhD in France, joins a startup in Switzerland, so he's a very he has a very global career and we definitely talk about that. And we also talk about the academic world that he has had a large exposure into and he constantly is involved in at the university 
lectures as well as helping other PhDs think differently about their future career as neuroscientists as well. And we'll talk about the childhood that started his fascination with the human brain and just so much more, like even ways of how people who don't have a neuroscience education can get involved in the field with modern day technology as well as just the various resources that are out there. I should also add that I selfishly wanted to learn more about neuroscience and meditation because that's something I'm just so f- fascinated by. And so we also do geek out about all all that kind of stuff in the episode as well. And Graham's just, just so much more technically advanced and just smarter in just many ways in terms of all this stuff than I am. So I am constantly asking him to dumb it down so that I can follow along. And so if you are anything like me and just basic primary nor maybe even like primitive understanding of neuroscience you might appreciate it but if you're just more advanced than i am you might get a little frustrated so please forgive me on that but without further ado here's my conversation with graham hey everyone welcome back to accounted for today on the podcast we have graham mofat Hey, Graham, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So it's actually pronounced Moffat. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That's no, all right. No, Moffitt. I mean, it's a tough one to get. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's Scottish. Scottish. Uh, okay. Yeah. Are your parents both Scottish? Uh, my grandfather's from Scotland. Yeah. Okay. So. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Uh, yeah. Well, Graham here is the Chief Scientist and VP Regulatory Affairs at Interaxon. And so, Graham, for the audience who are not familiar with Interaxon, can you Give them a background of what the company does. Yeah, so Interaxon is, um, I think, the world leader in consumer uh, neurotechnology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make wearable EEG systems and biophysical or, or biosignal um, systems that can be used for a variety of things. So uh, the big application that most people buy our uh, signature product Muse for is uh, neurofeedback-assisted learning of meditation. So there's a big big demand now to learn how to meditate and be better at meditating. And, you know, a lot of people struggle uh, initially when they, they try to learn how to meditate and they find it difficult to stick with because they don't have any feedback because when you're inside your own head, looking at your own thoughts and trying to comprehend them and, and focus on them, uh, you know, there's no way really of measuring that except with uh, neurotechnology. Uh, so even meditation teachers have to look at very subtle cues and ask questions of you to, to try to understand whether or not you're getting it. Uh, and we use neurotechnology uh, and specifically electroencephalography with some signal processing and machine learning to, uh, to create an experience that runs on um, mobile devices connected to wearable EEG systems uh, that, and now also biosignal systems like uh, heartbeat feedback and things like that uh, and respiratory feedback to help people learn how to sit and how to breathe uh, and how to observe their thoughts and how to hold focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Muse does. And uh, so Muse is a, a four-channel electroencephalography system. You can check out our website, uh, choosemuse.com, uh, and it gives a pretty good summary. And there are a lot of research papers up there associated with all of the different applications that are uh, accessible um, with the with the the technology. Because it's a uh, uh, we built sort of an open platform and allowed people to to create research tools of their own. Um, and some people even created apps of their own. Uh, and that allowed, that has allowed a lot of neuroscientists um, using open tools like Python and uh, and even educational tools uh, to use Muse uh, as a, a field research tool or a low-cost research accessory uh, or an in-class educational tool to teach about biosignals and brain signals and things like that. 
Wow. And so then if someone were to go out and buy, actually buy the Muse head, headband and they just put it on, it'll just kind of guide them through everything? Is that yeah, how it works? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I mean, that's the, all of the, be- the kind of best wearable technologies, or the best mobile technologies are, are things that guide you um, into the experience uh, in an intuitive way and help you understand how to, how to use them. And, uh, you know, EEG is tricky because you have to get good signal quality in order for it to be useful. Otherwise, you're recording just noise. Hmm. Uh, so you have to teach people how to put on a wearable EEG system and get good signal quality. And that's a, a user experience and a user research challenge that we solved a few years ago uh, when we first started. We didn't solve it initially. Like we, you know, we continued to improve and I think we've gotten better and better, but uh, that's a big challenge. And so the experience has to be engaging and educational and give something back to the user pretty quickly. And EEG is like, just, I'm just very, you know, just assume that I know nothing about anything new. So, <laughs> right, right, so yeah. The, so the, EEG is brainwaves. It's the kind of gotcha. thing that if you, you know, if you have epilepsy or if you have uh, uh, sleep disorder, uh, you go into the hospital or to a sleep clinic and they put these leads on your head uh, with wires uh, connected to them. And now they're wireless um, often. You can, you can make uh, wireless systems that have little battery packs attached to them. Um, sometimes they're encased in like a swim cap style uh, system. And sometimes they're in uh, configurations like ours, which are you know, designed for consumers that are very sparse, have only a few channels uh, that you can still get useful information out of. So in brain imaging, there's always a trade-off between uh, how complex and big the machine is and how long the setup time is for measurement and uh, uh, you know, how much data you need uh, or how, much, uh, how many data points or how many uh, points of recording you need in order to see something useful. Uh, you can always see more with more channels and you can see more with you know, more expensive equipment. Uh, so the question is really like, do you have enough resolution with what you're doing in order to, or with what you're using in order to do what you want? Um, so electroencephalography is just brainwaves. Uh, and there are a number of different ways of, um, of really approaching that. But you know, fundamentally, it's a reflection of populations of neurons communicating with one another in the brain. Um, so you see transient events when you either perceive um, something in the environment or when you engage in a cognitive action uh, or even when you engage in a motor action. You know, there's a, there's a motor part of the sensory motor part of the brain that um, initiates motion and plans motion. And you can see these things, uh, but you often have to average over multiple repeated efforts of, of whatever task it is and then uh, look at an averaged signal uh, to see these transient ones. And then there's ongoing EEG, which is um, oscillations and um, non-periodic activity that is sort of in the background. And for a long time, you know, we didn't quite know, and we still don't have a, have a complete picture of what all of these things mean. Uh, but the oscillations seem to uh, relate to long-distance communication within the brain, so between different networks of uh, uh, cognitive and uh, brain systems. Hmm. So then, right now then, if, if I put on the Muse headband, it's detecting like if I you know go through meditation, it'll go through my brainwaves and see like the, if there yeah. is change, then that's <clears> the result I'll, I'll be seeing to see that is it you know am I finding a calmer state? Is my mind calmer? Like it's going through that kind of imaging. From so not only is it it's 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 doing a direct feedback where we calibrate for um, some amount of time uh, in the setup, and then we try to help people drive toward a state of relaxed focus. Okay. Uh, and there are characteristic um, components that are common to almost everyone when they're in that state. And then there are unique parts um, that are unique to each individual. Uh, people's brains change with age. They, you know, they change with um, how much sleep they've had. They, so, you, so these characteristics change from day to day. They're not highly, some are highly stable and some are not, even within an individual. So you have to, 
And between individuals, they can be different. So you have to calibrate to an individual, and you use machine learning and data science to do that. So you build this into your, um, your data pipeline. Mm, and, so that's, and then when you get the feedback you get is you're in a virtual auditory environment. So you pop your headphones on, and you know, you're in a rainforest or on a beach, and you're hearing sounds of like the wind and the rain, and, uh, and that sound gets noisier, it gets stormier uh, as, you, uh, as your attention slips. And that's a cue to bring your attention back to, say, your breathing or to uh, focus on a specific thought and try to hold it. Oh, so it adjusts, yeah. adjusts as a, I'm yeah, it's, a, oh. it's real-time adaptive feedback wow. um, to teach you how to recognize your thoughts. Interesting for you. What, what is your meditation practice like? Um, you know, mine is, uh, mine is varied, I would say. Sometimes it's like it's you know, getting on a bike and, and riding for 100 kilometers and zoning out to do that. Uh, sometimes it's using Muse, and sometimes it's just sitting and and uh, and practicing a sort of a classic kind of vipassana meditation. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an open monitoring or a mindfulness meditation. Yeah, I just had my uh, own mindfulness session just before coming here. Oh, cool! Um, but yeah, I've I've never really had a way of you know using any kind of metrics to measure whether I'm being effective or not. Like, is there is there something you use outside of Muse to you know tell? That, um, that's a philosophical debate within the meditation community, I would say. Mm. Um, so, you know, we built in some measures because people like scores. And, right. and the scores are there really to give them, uh, you know, you can look back on your session and you can see where your mind um, was way off uh, wandering and you can see where it was focused. And that's really all that looking at a time series graph of a meditation session is good for, is to say, okay, you know, this is, I recognize that this was my experience and I'll learn from it. But... Um, I think we made a uh, we made a decision early on that we wanted to um, that people seem to really like the idea of a score, like they liked a step count from a Fitbit, or they liked, you know, they they treated it like a game. So um, we we created a scoring system for this, and then and people started to keep score and really focus on improving their score, and that I think is um, you know that attracted some criticism from the meditation community because uh, they get quite concerned that you're focusing on the wrong things. If you're competitively meditating or if you're thinking about like, you know, how, what your score was in Muse, you're, you're, you might be misprioritizing some aspects of mindfulness. Um, I don't think that's wrong. I think that, uh, so, you know, I, I've tried to encourage people who get, who really get hung up on the scores in Muse to, um, to just try and focus on improving themselves, improving their own experiences and like reflecting on what that means. Uh, and I think we learned a valuable lesson, which is you have to be very careful in the design of uh, a technology for mindfulness or mental health, because you can be incenti- you can you can easily get into incentivizing the wrong kind of behavior. Um, that's true for, you know, if you look at how how Facebook and uh, Instagram were optimized for, uh, you know, I would say almost against mental health to get people hooked and like seeking reward, and now they're moving away from that and they're trying to get people off the constant repetitive stereotyped behavior. Uh, you have to really be careful when you're designing technology that you do the right thing for people's mental health. Mm-hmm. And this focus on neuroscience, like did it did it come out early when you when you were growing up? Did you always want to? Were um, you always curious about the human mind? I, I mean, I was always, you know, I uh, we were very lucky in Northern Ontario that there's a really good science center that we all got to go to as kids in elementary school, Science North. Uh, and so that was always there from the early days. I grew up way out in the forest, so I was really into bugs and things, um, and uh, the natural world. And uh, then I started to get migraines when I was about seven, or when I was about eleven or twelve years old. And 
that became pretty fascinating because you know you you first when you're first being diagnosed and you have these like these sudden acute symptoms they're not sure whether it's a brain tumor so like you're in, in all kinds of scanners and things and you're asking questions of the technicians and it's pretty interesting like you know my parents were terrified and i was just fascinated by these machines so uh that turned into a, a sort of you know i, I started out in in um physics at mcmaster and and uh and studied medical and health physics, which is sort of applied brain imaging in a lot of respects, or applied imaging and, and, and related things about uh, radiation dosimetry and uh, radiotherapy. And, um, and from there, that uh, manifested into real, a realization that the, the technical aspects of the imaging technologies were really, really cool. But ultimately, I think what, um, what motivated me was sort of the answers to questions about what, what the brain's actually doing and how it works. Mm. So that's where I followed, that's where I pursued uh, graduate school. Uh, and I was very fortunate to have a, a really exceptional mentor, a guy named Larry Roberts, uh, who passed away recently, uh, who, who was uh, a really, really well-rounded experimental psychologist, neuroscientist, uh, teacher, who had developed an interest in a fascinating phenomenon of, of phantom sensation, so tinnitus and phantom limb pain, and, mm -hmm. and he became the world's expert on that late in his career, so he's sort of had two phases of his career, and and that was fascinating in itself to see somebody who like shifted their research program, you know, when they were like 50 years old, uh, 50 or 60 years old, uh, into a totally new direction and became a world expert. Uh, and so that, that manifested into, you know, getting into the animal physiology where I did my PhD in, uh, in Aix-Marseille at the National Scientific Research Center in France, uh, <clears throat> and getting really pretty deep into like the cortical and brain physiology of, uh, of how these disorders develop and, you know, what, what can we do about them? What are the treatment options and how do we design better treatments? Uh, and yeah, then, uh, some cool opportunities presented themselves to get involved in, uh, computational neuroscience and in scientific communication. And I leaped at the chance and, uh, and ended up running frontiers in neuroscience, which is, I think the biggest open access journal in the field still, uh, in neuroscience and, and from there, uh, because that was kind of a cool startup, it was a startup among publishers, I got the bug for startups and tech startups. Mm. Uh, went on to, uh, from some of the problems that I identified when I was working in the publishing industry and the opportunities for um, innovation, uh, that led me to uh, going to work with a company called Sciencecape, which later became Meta and is now Chan Zuckerberg Meta. Uh, and the, solving some really cool problems about just information uh, processing and sharing in this in the uh, scientific literature and how we share you know how we discover information uh, and then uh, after a little more than a year there um, a friend of mine approached me in uh, about interaxon and uh, asked what I thought and so I was introduced and uh, we just hit it off and I uh, I came to you know it was just sort of one of those serendipitous things where uh, you really like the people in the place and uh, it seems like a very interesting problem, and uh, the fit was right. So I joined Interaxon and uh, rose to become the chief. I started as a postdoc here, and I ended up becoming the chief scientist. And uh, because my PhD had been supported by a uh, cochlear implant manufacturer, I had some background in uh, medical regulatory affairs. So I ended up, you know, taking on some of the regulatory responsibility for the company as well. Uh, and figuring out, navigating the regulatory paths in Canada and the United States and Europe and learning all about, you know, how to, how to get a device through um, these different, these 
kind of challenging different scenarios of different regulatory regimes and what you were allowed to use it for and what you weren't allowed to use it for and what claims you were allowed to make. And, and that got pretty interesting. So uh, we've now launched, I think, four or five versions of Muse. Uh, I think we'll be on the fifth one this, this fall. Uh, each one has been better than the last and has been, uh, you know, we've, we've contributed a lot to the design uh, through the data science and the research that we've done uh, in improving this and, and in expanding its utility. So uh, it's something I think I'm, you know, the team, I'm really proud to, to have been a part of this team and to, uh, to continue to be a part of it and, and to see how, how much, you know, how well it's doing now and growing in, into, um, you know, I think we're the, I think we're the largest, we're certainly the biggest EEG by volume of EEGs sold um, ever. Mm -hmm. uh, we probably sell more EEG systems than all other manufacturers in the world combined uh, because we sell a very low-cost system and because it's very popular um, as far as EEG goes. How many are out there right now? How many have you sold? Uh, hundreds of thousands. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And when you talk about the regulatory affairs, like that was my like initial curiosity too when I saw your title. I was thinking, hmm. So I, I get that you're a yeah. chief scientist because you're a neuroscientist. I get that. And then when you said when it said um, regulatory affairs, I was very curious on what what is what has been for you like the interesting thing about the regulatory affair part. You know, the most interesting thing. I mean, typically when you're in um when you're working with something like EEG, there's a tendency for people to think of it as a medical device uh, because most EEGs in history have been medical devices. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that this technology, because of the advent of mobile phones and tablets. Um, is moving outside of the laboratory and, you know, the components from, um, from cell phone supply chains can be used for, like, as an EEG amplifier. Um, and you can make very low-cost EEGs like Muse. Um, you can make very low-cost neurotechnology and wearable tech. Um, these things are getting pulled in directions and into places that they have not historically been, uh, never really been before. So there's one aspect of you know, what do we call this and what do we say about it, given that it's historically a medical device? And there are regulations in the medical device uh, rules about what EEG is and what it can be used for. Uh, and, you know, so you have to be very careful about what you're saying uh, and you have to be aware and you have to teach your marketing team too. And uh, so that's been one of the fun things is, you know, as a scientist, you really want your claims to be veridical. Um, you want them, you want to say things that are true and you don't want to say more than that. And, Marketing has a fundamentally different tension. You know, they need to say things to get attention and to get, uh, like, mind share and traction. And so they're always going to push as hard as they can. So learning to, to navigate that tightrope and to, like, work with the marketing team to educate them uh, has been a really interesting challenge. Uh, another really interesting aspect of this is that because we're not the only ones um, doing this kind of innovation, you know, like the big tech companies are doing it, uh, not just neurotech, but wearable tech and, and mobile health and digital health uh, broadly. Uh, the, the regulators, especially in the U.S., are um, really innovating a lot. So they're creating, rather than sort of re reacting to the technology coming along, they're creating sandboxes for to that say, like, look, here are the things you're allowed to do. Go out and experiment and show us real-world evidence. Hmm. Um, sh we show us that the devices are low risk, and then if you can, if you, if you can, uh, if we can confidently believe you that they're low risk based on the evidence you share with us, then go and experiment in the real world. Uh, so the Apple Watch is a really great example of this. You know, they have an atrial fibrillation thing that's based on data science uh, for, so they can tell you when you need to go to the hospital and get checked out. Uh, oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. And they do that with the photoplethysmograph. So it's like a way of, of detecting um, 
irregular heartbeat um, that doesn't rely on ECG. And it's pretty accurate. And so it's a triage mechanism, right? It's like this two-thirds of the ones that they sent to hospital actually had uh, irregular heartbeats, atrial fibrillation. Wow. So they did a study on 400,000 people with Stanford, and they, they found this incredible result. So that was pretty cool. Like, And now that's a feature that you can roll out on Apple Watches. You know, If somebody has a risk of irregular heartbeat and they have an Apple Watch, that's one more tool in the toolbox to help them live a healthier life. Mm-hmm. And like on, on this kind of career path of you, you said you started catching like the startup bug when you joined Frontiers in Neuroscience. Yeah. And so then before that, the, was the goal to be a scientist? Uh, no, I don't think I was quite so organized as that. It was just more like curiosity. Uh, okay, you know, so it was like, this, is, this is hard and interesting, so I'm just uh-huh. going to keep doing this. Huh. Yeah. So then going it was like I never school. optimized for, for like income or a career development because you know, the last thing you want to, the last thing you want to do if you're, if you're interested in making money is become a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, if you go to grad school, you're, you're rolling, you're rolling the dice on, on like where you go in your career. Uh, (laughs) you can go into tech and you can go into other places, you know, you can go and become a patent lawyer or whatever. If you, if you're in like a science or engineering field, um, or you can go into those fields and, you know, that means that that's always a that's always a trade off. Right. Because if you want to go to the academic route, then you have to take the jobs where they come. Uh, you have to move around a lot. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's an unstable life for quite some time. Uh, if you want to go into tech, it's high risk, um, but it's also high. It can be very rewarding. So there are so many options available to scientists and engineers now. And the uh, the really cool thing for me has been to see. Uh, in the last five years, like this explosion of neurotech opportunities for uh, for neuroscientists and for people coming out of grad school, even undergrads and masters. You know, you do an under um, neuroscience undergraduate degrees didn't exist when I was an undergrad. Like they, you know, they were psychology, experimental psychology, uh, but they've only sort of popped up in the last fifteen years. Uh, and now they're everywhere. Every school has one, and it's hugely popular. And we're graduating all these kids into. You know, what are you going to do with a neuroscience degree? Well, you know a lot of stuff, so that's useful. But now there are actual jobs in like tech for neuroscientists, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's UX research or human factors or biosignal or medical device or like consumer neurotech or sort of high tech neurotech. You know the, the frontier stuff like uh, Neuralink or Kernel. Uh, and so if you go on the Neurotech X, which is the big um, community of enthusiasts and hackers, you go on there jobs board there's there are tons of jobs for neuroscientists out there in the private sector and that's that's a totally new thing that's like just in the last few years it's been a remarkable change that now uh you know i think in part because uh people are more aware of the importance of brain health and they want devices and they want cool like new ways of interfacing with games and with technology and so there's demand and there's interest and there's opportunity as a result but when you were actually going through it like so you finished your graduate school um, so you did your master's in mm-hmm. neuroscience, and then when you went to do your PhD, like it was covered by I think it was Opticon. Uh, Oticon, yeah, Neuralink is actually yeah. the, I think it was the company, and they were acquired by Oticon Medical. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And so yeah, like you had a sponsored PhD, but w- would you have done a PhD? Was it planned to even do a PhD if it wasn't sponsored? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Most science PhDs are are financially supported by scholarships. Okay. Um, but the best scholarships to have are you know, either the the really big. Uh, like Canada graduate scholarships or the industry ones because the industry ones pay a lot better uh, 
and you get access to a different world that um, that the purely academic graduate students don't get to see. Like you're in the academy and you're you're seeing everything that they see, but you're also seeing the industry world and how it works. Mm-hmm. And you're making connections to people who can explain to you, you know what it means to be a research engineer uh, in in industry. Uh, so uh, yeah, I recommend to everyone who can if you know if you're gonna if you're interested in the brain or if you're interested in kind of kind of anything life sciences or anything um, you know if you're gonna go into a PhD and you can get a company to pay for it do it there are plenty of programs out there in Canada there's my tax uh, and OCE in France there's Cifre. Um I'm sure there are other ones in the US and UK where you know part of the part of the scholarship <laughs> uh, is covered by the company and part of the scholarship is covered by the um, either the university or like the the funding agency from the the country okay yeah and so then what how would you distinguish the difference between like neuroscience psychology and like human behavior are they different or (laughs) they were um they they were there was a pretty strong dichotomy between them uh if you go back to the 50s and 60s neuroscientists were people who were working on cells and like trying to understand the physiology of cells Mm. um and psychologists were people who were trying to understand the the mental models and behaviors of people and there were all kinds of different schools like um, psychoanalysis and behaviorism that, you know, went off in pretty, like, in radical directions a very long way before they sort of, before there was a sort of a self-correction within the, the, the fields. Um, and I think since the, you know, they've just been converging more and more. Um, so there are people who will uh, say crazy things like, you know, you don't need to study behavior in order to study, study neuroscience, which is... Um, Technically, it's true. You can go in and just study cell types and say, like, you know, what are the what are the what's the morphology and you know, and what what are the what genes are expressed in this cell type. But ultimately, the brain is a, uh, you know, the nervous system is there to to generate behavior. Like that's the purpose of the nervous system in a mammal, is, or for that matter, in an invertebrate, uh, is so that it moves it moves around in its environment and adapts and like gets food and does the things that motivate it. Uh, so. The nervous system is there to produce uh, behaviors mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, to perceive the world and react to it and, and to, to plan and, and to take actions. So I think you want to know something about behavior um, and you want to know something about psychology because psychology is ultimately a successive approximation and like building better and better models of what causes people to be motivated in certain ways and why people do certain things and what patterns they get into that are healthy and unhealthy. Um, you know, cognitive science and psychology and neuroscience are uh, three sides of the same question. So, uh, and not even necessarily distinct there. I think, I think, you, you know, in order to be well-rounded in a, in, or in a scientific field, whether you're in industry or the academy, you, you want to, you want to understand all the, these, the concepts, the basic concepts and the sort of principles behind these. And do you think that if, so if for some, someone who's, let's say, already graduated, but they don't have a science background. But with this explosion of neuroscience and all these kind of neurotech opportunities, people start, you know, like a person gets really interested in it. For yeah. them to get involved, do it's, they have to go back and do the graduate school? Or? No, no, you don't have to do that anymore. Hmm. No. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we have lots of people in our company who have never been to graduate school and don't have a background in neuroscience, but know a lot of it now because they worked at Muse. So people who are database coders and developers, you know, our data scientists we're almost pure data scientists and now they know a lot about brain stuff because we've been working together for years on 
understanding what these signals mean from a data science perspective and from a signal processing perspective. So they, you know, you pick up a lot of stuff on the way. Hmm. Um, you can be a software engineer and kind of do almost anything you want, uh, you know, or a computer scientist. Uh, and you can go in any kind of direction or electrical engineer. Um, those are great ways to get into neuroscience. Com hmm. uh, you know, comp sci or electrical engineering are absolutely fantastic ways to get into neuroscience. Some of the best neuroscientists I've known in my life have been um, initially trained as electrical engineers. Hmm. And so then right, among your peers as neuroscientists, what what do most of your peers end up doing? Are they mostly in um, like academia or would you say that? Um, no, I think I'm a little bit unusual in that, I, you know, because I've been in industry and I and I have this industry bent and I engage with other companies uh, and, and their scientists. My my peer group is probably a bigger and more of a mix. Like if you talk to academic neuroscientists, they probably don't know very many industry neuroscientists. Hmm. Um, which is a funny thing because if you look at chemistry, like 80% of chemistry PhD grads go and work for chemical companies or like uh, petroleum companies or things like that. You know? uh, and in academic neuroscience, it's been traditionally more like everybody stays in the academy or they're no longer really doing neuroscience. They go out and do something else. Now that there's an industry, there's a neurotech industry, there's a neuropharma industry, uh, and there's a lot of uh, interest in neuroscience from things like policymakers, uh, you can really end up getting... Uh, there, there are a lot of different, I think, opportunities to engage with these things uh, from different perspectives. So, so my perspective is, is, if it's biased, it's biased toward, um, I think, almost more, you know, overtly engaging more with industry neuroscientists and trying to push more graduate students to think about careers in industry. Because mm -hmm. I think the academy, um, you know, if you're in grad school, your professor most likely only really knows. Um, the younger ones are a little better, but the old ones, mostly just know about what an academic career is. So they can't really, they're not really prepared to set someone up for, you know, how to transition into industry. That's tricky um, if you don't have a mentor who's, who can help you. Uh, so uh, where, I can, where I help out uh, and where I get involved is, is kind of in, in advising and counseling and maybe even, you know, encouraging people to think about careers in industry. Because uh, they have this intense pressure to think about a normal career as staying inside the university, uh, which is not normal for any other field, mm -hmm. right? like chemistry or any kind of engineering. You know, if you go and do a mechanical engineering graduate degree, you're still most likely going to go out and work for a, work in industry for like a manufacturing company or something like that. And for you, when, so when you were in your own journey, like did you did you have a period of being misunderstood by the industry because mm. you were like different from the others? No, no, I think I, I mean, no, I've, I've always sort of tried to tried to chart my own path. And, uh, you know, uh, initially when you're leaving the academic lifestyle, your friends are all kind of wondering, like, is, is that something that people do? <laughs> you know, they're, they think they tend to think of it as like, oh, you're leaving, you know, rather than like, no, I, I'm, I'm intentionally going over here. <laughs> like, I'm, this has been my plan all along is to get an industry job. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I just find the pace of things and uh, the, the practicality of the problems more engaging. Uh, I still like to do this discovery science. Um, you know, and I hang out in my friend's labs from time to time and, and ask a lot of questions and like occasionally sit in and like patch a cell just for fun. Uh, or, uh, you know, we try to do some discovery science from the perspective of big data because we have, we have a bigger data set than anyone has ever had in EEG before. It's very sparse, but you can see things. We're, we're seeing things in there that uh, people haven't reported uh, in EEG in the literature before, which is really exciting because 
it helped it, you know, it suggests that we can answer questions that people have not been able to answer before, just through the sheer volume of data. And when I think about what neuroscientists create, you know, with re research, is it seems like I'm definitely biased here, but it seems like from the outside that the final product is a, a giant white paper or some kind of research paper that kind of yeah, I, I think guess, um, puts all the research because the way that in. yeah, there, for two reasons. One is that you know you're, the way that you continue to operate your lab is you're measured based on your publication output mm -hmm. and the number of students you graduate um, who come out of your lab and where they go. Uh, and so I sit on a couple of, of uh, committees, evaluation committees that. Uh, with mostly academic scientists for grants and things. Uh, and, you know, one of the criteria is where have this person's students gone? Although, you know, this person's a professor here and this person's a postdoc there. And, um, and my push is always like, how many people have they sent to industry? You know, how many of their students are doing science outside of the academy? And that, I think, is a question that, you know, they're not, they don't quite know how to ask or answer if you're an academic scientist. So that's my contribution or one of my contributions to these, uh, these kinds of evaluations. Mm -hmm. Um the uh, so you have to you have to play that game of publishing papers and getting cited, publishing papers in high impact journals, uh, just in order to get promoted and operate your lab, and then by the time you're finally free and you know you, I mean you're never you're never really free because you have to always think about the next grant, um, but by the time you finally got, you know you're a mid career or senior scientist and you could say, you know what I'm I'm not going to do that, um, that's the uh, that's the game you know. And that's the game you keep playing. Hmm. So, uh, like, there's nothing stopping people from, you know, in a lot of fields in data science and um, in big parts of neuroscience and neurotech, uh, the, the trend is becoming, or especially AI, you know, AI is a really good example of this. The trend is moving away from journal publications and to just preprints. You know, you just put it up on a server and then people comment on it. Hmm. It's a different form of peer review. And then publish your code and publish your data. And, uh, Younger neuroscientists tend to do this, uh, and I think that's a really good thing because it produces much better science faster. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can still have all of the other layers of peer review and everything on top of that. But this is um, the, the, the open science movement and just code sharing and, and version control, you know, like just posting all of our tools on GitHub uh, is an incredibly powerful tool for accelerating science because it gets us out of their, our little um, niche groups. You know, people from places we would never have dreamed might be interested in our work can discover it. And so when you first joined Interaction, I think you joined on as the first neuroscientist into the company, yep. right? And so when you joined on, what what was the first question? Was it how do we prove that med meditation works with this device? Like how how do you, what's <laughs> the process? Really yeah, what's the yeah, process no. for going about solving this pro this tough problem? When I when I came into the company, uh I think they had in mind that I was going to come in and solve one problem for them, and I came in and solved different problems. So, uh, you know, there was a, there, the question that was on the minds of everyone when I arrived in Interaxon was, how do we prove that this device uh, works as a meditation tool? And so there was, there was some work underway, some collaborative work underway to, to, try, and, uh, to try and achieve that. Um, I took a step back and said, okay, well, th there are questions out there if you go and ask people like what they think of this tech. Uh, they don't even believe that it's a working EEG system. So let's try to establish that. So we set up a, a number of collaborations and we, um, you know, we opened things way up and said, here are all the tools you, you can use. And, and if you build an open source tool, we'll feature it on our website. And so people started doing that. And 
and I started sending um, free muses, which we don't can't do anymore. But uh, I started sending free muses to influential EEG neuroscientists and saying, um, "We'd love to see what you can do with this. Uh, let me, you know, let us know. Just publish your code, and we'll share it." And so we got some really good results from that. So people were publishing uh, open code. They made JavaScript connectors. They made uh, lab streaming layer, which is a, a quite a common protocol. They made a connector for that. Uh, there were groups of people who built um, there were all kinds of hackathons uh, that started using Muse, and then we discovered a problem there that participants in hackathons had no idea what to do with EEG neurodata. So we had to build. Uh, so that actually became a hackathon project in itself. Was um, let's build a tool to educate hackathon participants uh, about how to use this, these data, these data streams. And that turned into a tool for um, high school education with Muse. So then it started to get into high school science classrooms and undergraduate science classrooms. So just by supporting this open ecosystem, we, um, I think we, we, we really effectively debugged the problem of like people not believing that this was a, uh, like a working EEG system. And then we started to ask questions like, okay, how do we show, how do we understand, rather than trying to prove that something works, how do we understand, understand whether it works and, and how effective it is? And not just like, does it work at all, but is it, you know, if you're comparing this thing to, um, if it's a tool to learn how to meditate, let's compare it to an app. Let's see, you know, what people use. Part of it is, part of that is effectiveness, but part of it is also engagement. So what do people do? Do they like to put a thing on their head and listen to uh, weather sounds like, or, you know, uh, or sit on the beach and try to and hear birds chirping and things like that? Or do they like to listen to instructions on their headphones from an app that doesn't give them adaptive feedback and, uh, you know, direct feedback on their brain? Uh, and what are the differences? Is it, it's not just a question of one being better than the other, is one better for one type of person than the other? Uh, you know, is this a niche, is this a product that fits some niches better than others? Uh, you know, guys seem to like it more than uh, women, to a, like a, a little bit. You know, there's a slight skew in the customer demographic. There's more guys than girls. Who, but then that turns out that's true of, of all early wearable technologies. There's a gender bias. Early adopters, tech early adopters tend to be men. Not always, not exclusively, but there's going to be a there's going to be a skew. So, um, you know, we don't have answers to all of those questions yet, but we have some good papers out that have come out with uh, institutions like Massachusetts General Hospital and uh, the University of Toronto and uh, the Mayo Clinic and uh, uh, a few others that have that have shown. That, yeah, no, this actually, you know, Muse does produce comparable uh, meditate comparable outcomes to a mindfulness. Uh, course uh, and it produces those in you know the same time frame or shorter like four weeks you get you get the you get a comparable outcome in terms of reduction of, of stress and increase in resilience and uh, so so that was that was nice to establish and now I think we're on to really pushing the envelope on you know how much more can we get out of this system and what are the modifications we have to make to to build this into something really great that can uh, that can do not just meditation but other health other brain health applications. Can, can we measure brain health? Can we detect brain disease? You know, those kinds of those are the kinds of questions we're asking. And so, when you're actually like building out this process, is it does it start with some kind of hypothesis where you say, okay, well, if we put this code base in and we see this imaging, we're going to assume that this means reduced um, anxiety. And then you no, just you have to you have to go and get a population of those people um, to put your device on. You, so you have some idea where to look because the scientific literature gives you clues as to that. Right, but. You have to go and then prove out that you can de detect it with your device because you have a much sparser EEG system. So it's, you know, K 
can we do we have enough resolution in this thing to detect what these people say that they can detect with a high, high density EEG system? So that's that's part of the uh, part of the challenge is is setting up research collaborations with people who work with populations of people with say anxiety or ADHD or dementia. Um, and so we set up collaborations with them and we do projects together and then they they collect data uh, and they do the experimentation and, and we help them with the analysis and then we might publish a paper together or they might just publish it. Okay. Yeah. Do you always have to publish a paper? Is that the kind of final thing? That they always required? do. Okay. Right? The academic scientists always do. Mm. Um, if you're trying to get a device uh, approved for clinical use uh, or a medical device approved by the FDA, you have to send the data to the FDA. You have to share it with them. And you have to you have to you have to involve them in the study design, but that's a more involved thing. It's a it's a it's a very highly rigorous but also very highly controlled process. So bigger sample sizes than academic uh, research uh, experiments, because you're trying to ask a different question, right? It's like, does this work for everybody? Can this be endorsed as a as a diagnosis or a treatment, or uh, you know a triage system, versus like what is the effect on the brain of these different things? Um, right. which is more of a fundamental question, which is like what the, the neuroscience lab, like academic neuroscience labs will do. And like going on this journey of, you know, going down the academic path and then going to the startup world and going into industry, is there, was there like a particular moment that you can like think back on that you feel made a very impactful um, inflection point in the route you decide to take? Um yeah, I would say it's been uh, it's been having really exceptional and generous mentors. Uh, and you were in the PhD program uh, throughout my life. Um, so you know, undergrad, I had some great profs who were really good uh, and really encouraging. Uh, in grad school, I had I had some excellent advisors um, and some very very supportive people uh, who were not necessarily even on my committee, but who you know just were just genuine and, and kind and and gave me their time and and gave advice, gave good advice. And encouraged, you know, that's that's really important. It's for somebody to say, I think you can make it if you, you know, you, you try. <laughs> so, so were, uh, they, were, they, were the advice like more skewed towards like, you should try it in industry. You should go out and do this. Yeah, I had some, I had some advisors saying, you know, I don't know if you're going <laughs> to, I don't know if you're going to enjoy the academy as much as, as maybe some people do. So you should, you know, even in early grad school, it's like, you should think about other stuff because you seem a little impatient for this. So <laughs> <laughs> Good feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, pulling like 18-hour days in the lab because you want to get your experiments done faster is, you know, that's, to some people that might be seen as as uh, maybe a little pathological. And they're like, you know, you're not you're not going to be able to sustain yourself if you, do, if you do this. Maybe you should go and work for a tech startup where that's the kind of a thing that people do. Uh, <laughs> it's like sleeping under their desks. Um, I don't do that anymore, but, uh, you know, that's, that's learning work-life balance, which is another tricky thing for scientists and grad students to learn as well. Well, it, it seems like you might be going down uh, even. I am, yeah. More this is exciting. So, yeah. so I'm at the end of the week. Actually, is my last. This is my last week at Muse. Oh wow! Um, and I'm leaving with um, with another co- with two more other colleagues to start a new neurotech company that's going to do a different imaging modality, uh, different application. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the things we're excited about is everything that we learned about how consumers interact with neurotech and what it takes to build a business from the ground up and, and scale things and um, you know, really make them happen. Uh, you know, you, you, you have to kind of do a little bit of everything in a startup. And so it's getting back to basics and learning new skills. So I'm, I'm going back to like, you know, how do you, how do you run a business 101 and like starting from scratch on setting up a scientific advisory board and a research program and an R and D program and doing the coding myself for the analysis instead of like 
working with the team and like mostly delegating. Uh, so that's fun. And there are all kinds of things that you just can't anticipate uh, when you, you do a new startup that uh, force you to learn. So that's, you know, today I was, uh, uh, when I woke up before I came into the office, I was, uh, I was learning about web Bluetooth because I needed to know it for the new, t- the new startup. So uh, it's a fascinating thing, right? It's another skill you have. So you can you can pick up a new skill every day if you're if you're doing a if you're doing a tech startup. That's one of the most fun things about it. Oh yeah, like I I had no idea how to audit audio. I mean, edit audio, and right. now yeah. now I know how to do all the stuff. Yeah, and that's fun too. Yeah, and but but what was that decision process like when you're actually making the decision to leave? Like it, you know, you have this great thing going on and it tracks on, yeah. and new um, products coming. And... No, it was. Uh, I, I think. Um, I think it's that same thing as, you know, about that, imp- that kind of impatience. It's like, well, I've been at Interaxon for four years now and we've, I'm pretty proud of what we've achieved here. There's lots more to do, but uh, maybe it's time for something different. And the, the opportunity uh, showed up at the right time when, uh, you know, I was, I, I, I guess I was just ready for it. I said, yeah, let's go, let's go start from scratch and see if we can make this totally new thing work uh, in a way that nobody's ever used it before. Uh, and build a new technology that um, could change a lot of people's lives that's that's kind of the fun part that's that's what's exciting about it so it's it's me and my two colleagues um i spent the weekend uh you know rearranging the furniture in my condo so that we have three desks now (laughs) in a one bedroom condo and uh yeah and you know one of them is the kitchen island Uh, (laughs) so it's uh it's gonna be a lot of fun uh and it's uh it's it's really exciting to be a part of so and so like, did you not have any fear with this kind of decision? No. Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit. You know, it's, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to just decide to take no salary anymore. Right, yeah. Um, especially when you're not rich. Uh, oh, yeah. I, 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 I've been feeling it for the last 18 months. It's, it's yeah, horrible. it's like, you know, if you're, I think if you were rich, you would just, ah, you know, whatever. But, it, you know, you have some savings and it's taken a lot of time to build them up. And you're thinking, okay, well. I don't want to dip into those. So I'm just going to live extremely cheaply for, you know, there's going to be no going out for maybe once every month, go out for a beer with a friend and, and cooking your lunches. And uh, so the, uh, it's like Spartan mode, you know, you're, you're, uh, that's one of the things, the underappreciated features of graduate school is you learn how to live well without any money and enjoy life without any money. So it's not that hard to go back to. I think that's one of the things that's uh, underappreciated about uh, about uh, graduate student grad school or graduate students moving into industry is you know you're 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 set up to be successful at a tech startup because you know how to debug problems yourself and you know how to find solutions where none exist uh, and you know how to live on like rice and crackers when you need to <laughs> rice and crackers in six hours or four hours of sleep. <laughs> those are valuable skills to have definitely yeah, yeah. um graham thank i think uh we're kind of running up to the end of our timeline here but I, fact- it's been a lot of fun talking to you i yeah. really appreciate your uh including me in the podcast this is great yeah and like, honestly there's so many more questions i want to ask but i'll kind of try to keep it to like you know maybe like one last one and that it's if if your 20 year old self were to look at what you're doing right now so I guess, you know, that'd be the Graham in my third year, McMaster, still in yeah. physics. What do you think that Graham's emotional reaction would be to where you're at? 
yeah, I think it would be, uh, that's a good question. That, so third year Graham decided he wanted to be a fighter pilot and went and, uh, uh, went down to the, the, the enlistment center and, and uh, actually got through and got selected to, to join the Canadian forces as a pilot. Uh, and then they said, you have to drop out of McMaster and go to the, go to RMC for your last year of university. And I was like, but I'm, I'm in a very good school. <laughs> I said, sorry. So I was like, oh, okay, well, so yeah, that was, I was in a very different headspace then, uh, decided to finish my degree at Mac and I'm, I'm eternally grateful that I did, but I still would have liked to have been a pilot. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I've been all over the world. Uh, you know, I, I got to live in the south of France and be at uh, and work at and do my PhD at uh, uh, between Neuralac, which was in like Sofia Antipolis, one of the most beautiful places in the world, uh, and Marseille, which is one of the most interesting places in the world. And then I got to live in Switzerland to do uh, work with Henry Markham at the Human Brain Project, and then I and run Frontiers in Neuroscience and uh, and sort of see the world and travel all over the place uh, as a scientist working in industry. Uh, and since I've been here in Interaxon, I've been everywhere, you know, at the OECD meetings in China, talking about neurotechnology, uh, got developed an interest in policy and uh, become a fellow at the uh, University of Toronto, the Monk School of Public Policy, working on, uh, among other things, innovation policy, like how do we, how, do, how does Canada uh, and how do countries in general uh, build up their tech sectors and, and you know, increase uh, quality of life for everyone through uh, uh, tech policy. Uh, and you know, what do we do about neurotechnology? So like I've, yeah, I've been, I've sort of flown all over the world and seen all kinds of great places. And yeah, my 20 year old self should not be complaining about this. If, <laughs> if you had a chance to look at it, this is, this has been a, a really fun ride so far. Awesome, man. I can't believe I didn't learn that you were a pilot sooner. There's a lot of questions there <laughs> or yeah. you wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I, um, uh, I was a pilot. And I let my license lapse, so I'm going to have to go and get recertified. Wow. Yeah. Damn, this, you've definitely lived a very fascinating life, Graham. And I really appreciate you just sharing like a piece of it with myself and the and my audience on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm just think of it as i'm the service that's doing that for you so you can just 
pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way, so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this is, isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you